Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, ASCO, Tidget, Lag 3, has anyone seen my PD-1? Lauren takes us behind the acronyms at one of the biggest cancer conferences of the year. We also look at key takeaways from our Bioequity Europe conference, which focused on Europe's next act. And then Steve will bring us up to speed on last week's G20 Global Health Summit, the Biden administration's promise to export 80 million COVID vaccine doses and calls for the US and other wealthy countries to do much, much more. Lauren, I know you've been poring over abstracts since they dropped mid last week. Let's start with lag three. What's grabbing your attention there? I think lag three has grabbed everyone's attention. The biggest headline was obviously BMS's Relatlimab data, which was the first pivotal data for a next generation checkpoint that produced some promising efficacy. I think this is really important because it's helping to form a picture of what I think the next generation checkpoint landscape is going to look like. There's been so much concern about whether we can move forward with compounds that don't have monotherapy efficacy. And between what we saw last year with TIGIT and what we're now seeing with LAG3, this data showed that the combination of an anti-LAG3 MAB and an anti-PDL1 MAB more than doubled PFS, even though targeting LAG3 alone did almost nothing. So Lauren, investors are rushing in? We've looked at the landscape of next generation checkpoints periodically, and LAG3 is, I believe, the most popular of the targets, probably because it's the most far along. But something really interesting about this target is that different companies are going after it in a lot of different ways. So there's a lot of investment in the space, and there are a lot of different ways of going after the target. Investors can pick and choose. When you say different ways, are you talking about different modalities? So are we going to mm-hmm. see both the new target and new modalities going head to head? I think so. The maps are coming first, but there are also by specifics and there are also fusion proteins, at least one fusion protein, which I think is really interesting because that's actually going after a completely different activity of the target. So LAG3 works as a checkpoint when it's expressed on T cells. And then when it's cleaved off, it acts as an antigen presenting cell activator. It binds its target on dendritic cells, activates those, and, and stimulates entirely different immune pathway. Immutep also had data on that fusion protein modality at ASCO. Well, I think really one of the key things that we'll be watching is whether this changes the face of checkpoints. There's a lot of people who'd sort of at least intellectually withdrawn and said, look, nothing else is coming. I'm not putting my energy into checkpoints. It was PDL1 and CTLA4, that's it. If this one works, it could mean there's still a lot of untapped opportunities out there. Alternatively, if it doesn't work, is it going to just cast a bigger cloud? I I don't know the answer to that, but I think a lot of people are watching it with that expectation. So I think it's more than just this target. It's more, what does it mean for checkpoints? I think so. The people I've been talking with lately have been saying, we're starting to figure out how to target these checkpoints, even the ones that have failed in earlier studies. And I think lag three is a good example, and maybe we'll see more. Well, 
BMS was very much in the news last week, even beyond ASCO. For this week's Deal in Focus, BMS licensed exclusive worldwide rights to a compound from Agenis. It's a bispecific antibody against Tigit and an undisclosed target. This deal for AGN-1777 could supply the biotech with nearly 1.4 billion in biobucks. It's a $200 million deal up front for the preclinical company, which will also be eligible for double-digit royalties. Lauren, what attracted BMS to this particular compound? I think one thing is that at least in our records, there's not a lot of activity around bispecifics for TIGIT. Within TIGIT, we're not seeing the same kind of diversity in modalities. So that's one interesting thing. I had the opportunity to speak with the genus a few weeks ago, and they're really working on the FC engineering, which they think has something to do with the lack of monotherapy efficacy that some of the anti-TIGIT maps have had. And this is a component of the by specific that they're developing and they think that could lead to some broader efficacy for more patients. It does sound from this and the things you were saying earlier about lag three, that if companies can solve some of the approaches by which I mean modalities, we might see them going back to re-interrogate some of the failures of before in terms of checkpoints and so on. So honestly, I haven't had a chance to dig into some of the ASCO abstracts, but I know that 41BB maps against it are showing up this year at the meeting. And I'm interested to see what kind of data they're producing, because that's been a challenging target. And it seems like some of the problems with that are starting to to fade away. Keep your eyes on biocentry.com this week. Lauren, along with Karen Takach-Tuzman, who's a frequent guest on the pod, will be delivering a one-two punch as they dig deep into the data that is coming. And speaking of conferences, we just had one, our annual BioEquity Europe conference. It was all digital this year, which means if you missed it, you can still register and dive into the awesome content that my colleagues put together. We also have an exclusive report that McKinsey cooked up, which delves into Europe's innovation hotspots. You can also catch up, and this is in front of the paywall, on our podcast last week. Stephen Hansen, our man in the UK, and I were joined by Sopanova Partners, Graziano Segetzi. I'd like to go to Italy at some point to just take a class in Italian so I could pronounce these names better. Simone, is that in the budget? I hope. Maybe for next year. Actually, it is because BioEquity will be in Milan next year. So that's something to think about. But tune into the podcast we did Monday. We discussed hotspots in Europe. We delve into Switzerland, Scandinavia. And of course, you can never avoid the UK. At least I'm required to say that because. Yeah, first of all, who would want to avoid the UK? (laughs) And. Secondly, I have to speak on behalf of McKinsey here, because I know the people who did the report, they didn't cook up this report, Jeff. There was a lot of long hours that that went into that. And I know that because we have our own reports. Just a little point on their Slow cook, slow food. Slow, Uh, slow, slow cook. Slow, very slow. But no, and they also, they led two panels, which were really quite 
interesting. On the second day of our podcast, we had Kathy Williams, who's a lawyer with Nutter, and Da Lu, who's a global investor out of Asia, going back and forth on some topics as well. But let's turn to Steve. Steve, you moderated a panel on AMR. And obviously, this is a, you know, you've got your COVID. This is a very pressing, pressing topic for the world to start getting its act together and sorting things out. What did you learn from your panelists? Well, it, it wasn't slow cooking for sure. It was a pretty fast moving panel. I had Frank Kalkenbrenner, the global head of the Boger Ingelheim Venture Fund, Raphael Tordman, founder and CEO of Jito Capital, Bill Love, founder and chief scientific officer at Destiny Pharma, which is developing antibiotics. John Rex was the chief medical officer and director at F2G Limited, former head of antibiotic development at AstraZeneca, and Henry Skinner, who's the CEO of the AMR Action Fund. That's a fund that industry put together. They're giving a billion dollars to invest in early stage companies that are developing AMR solutions. The most interesting aspect of the discussion to me was the kind of back and forth about government pull incentives. John Rex and, and Bill Love were, and Henry Skinner, especially, were very enthusiastic about the kind of government pull incentives that have been developed in the UK that are in the works in the United States. And some of the other panelists were a little bit less enthusiastic about them. It wasn't that they didn't feel that they were necessary or even essential, but they really made the point that they're not going to be sufficient. And they're saying that in order to get pharma back into the game, developing products that are going to address AMR, there's a need to create business models that work and government pull incentives aren't going to be sufficient. So there's no notion, Steve, that the kind of collaborations that we've seen in the pandemic produce vaccines in record time, that momentum could spill into initiatives for addressing AMR? Well, the, the problem is that they're not going to be sufficient. If you think about it, and I think someone on the panel said this, if you had come up with the perfect drug that could cure COVID-19 in December 2019, its value would be exactly zero. You know, nobody would have paid anything for it. Of course, if you came up with the same drug in March of 2021, it would be of tremendous value. It's a similar problem with AMR. The problem isn't just getting investment in the front end to develop drugs that will address AMR. It's creating a business model that will they'll pull them through. I've written about a century about two public companies that got novel antibiotics all the way through to FDA approval, and then they both went bankrupt because there was no market for them. That's the kind of thing that the people on the panel were, were talking about, especially Frank Kalkenbrenner and Raphael Tordman, they were saying, you know, there needs to be a market for these products w once they're developed. And getting a lot of enthusiasm for investing in startup companies or even investing in antibiotic or other modality drug development at large pharma companies is one thing, but it's not really going to do anything if there isn't a, a market for these products after they get approved. So just one question, Steve, this sounds really grim doesn't sound very enthusiastic. Any shining lights coming out of this of optimism? You know, I think the grimness is probably me. The, the people on the panel weren't grim. <laughs> they, they were optimistic. They all think that this is a solvable problem. I don't think anybody 
could be at a senior level in biopharma without being optimistic. It's just um, journalists to get the kind of leisure to be skeptics and pessimistic about stuff. No, they were all optimistic. They do believe that the COVID wake-up can be used as a springboard to get governments and companies more engaged in AMR to create the solutions that are going to be needed to save us all. No small task. Simone, uh, you kicked off the conference with a virtual fireside chat with Kate Bingham of SV. She was among the leaders in the UK in developing countermeasures against the virus. What did Kate have to tell you? Well, Kate led the UK's vaccine task force, and I would actually contend that the creation of a task force, which the US did with Operation Warp Speed and the UK did with the vaccine task force, was a huge difference maker. That's my opinion, because the response in the UK, the response in the US was was way more coordinated and efficient than the UK's European counterparts. So one of the things that I asked Kate was in the context of previous partnerships with government that have not been particularly efficient, let alone effective, how was she actually able to approach this? And how was she able to turn this into a very efficient vehicle? What she told me was, first of all, it helped that she had a mandate from Boris Johnson, the prime minister, and she reported directly to him. The second thing she told me, and seriously, this was like a management 101 lesson. It was really great to hear how she approached this. She said, look, you have to be willing to put up a lot of money and a lot of things are going to fail and you will not get a return on all of your money. And that is something that is very hard for governments to hear. That's not what governments like to do. So she was very upfront with them and she really brought a VC mindset to it. They understood going into this that I was actually surprised. They thought they had like each vaccine at the time that in clinical trials had a 15% chance of working. So they built a portfolio approach from the outset. So I thought that there were a lot of really interesting things she had to say about managing expectations and the fact that the government gave her license to build the team she wanted, which had biomedical experts. Again, not something that many governments are normally rife with. So that was a real highlight, actually. I think a few other things that came out of the conference whose theme was the next act on the basis that Europe really created a lot of the innovations that were seminal to bringing us to at least this point of the pandemic. The Pfizer vaccine started at BioNTech, the AstraZeneca vaccine at Oxford, the recovery trial was run out of Oxford University. So there were a lot of positives that Europe really contributed. And on one panel, the idea came up that was a thread through the conference of the new normal. And we've been thinking about this for a while. And what he talked about was how can Europeans really create the energy that they put into this and the kinds of collaborations and the kind of innovative and shall I even say daring thinking and to turn that into their everyday day job to really accelerate therapies in other areas. And we had on a panel that I ran, Werner Lanthalus, the CEO of Evotech, who always is good for a, a quote saying, data is the new oil. And really talking about the data elements that were so rich that 
governments and scientists, and actually the whole population, in fact, who's following this in real time, are able to call on to guide how they do drug development, how they create policies, how they create public health measures. That, that's really interesting when you talk about data as a new oil and the role it's playing, because I think we all know people, everybody around the world had a half a dozen websites that they found were providing relevant statistics and people were looking at them almost obsessively. You know, the percentage of positivity, the caseloads, now it's a percentage of populations that are vaccinated. And it's, I guess it's unsurprising. It's a little bit like sports. When people are, are following sports, they become fascinated by the statistics also. And it's never ceased to amaze me how people who are in professions that you wouldn't think were quantitative or that would lead them to think this way can reel off tremendous amounts of statistics about whatever sport they're interested in. It's become the same thing with the vaccines and, and with the, the overall effort to address COVID. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can tell you, I've got several bookmarks on my browser that are different sites. And you see Twitter all over, newspapers, graphs and charts. And that really is going to be the lifeblood going forward, frankly, is what Verna's position was, that data is what's going to drive it. And there are various things like the genomics efforts out of various Scandinavian countries in the UK, which provide hugely rich data sources. And in this case, they'll be important for variants. And I think so they're really looking at, I don't know if assets is the right word, but those advantages that can fuel this next act, as they say. And, and if you missed out, you haven't missed out because you can still go to our website, biocentry.com, click on the bioequity link, and register. All the sessions and company presentations will be available through mid-June. I believe it's June 19th. We have a little bit of time left. Steve, I know last week you were tracking what was happening at the G20 meeting. You were also having a look at Biden administration's commitment to sending vaccines to other countries. Can you give us a brief rundown? So look, with vaccine supplies are exceeding demand in the United States, vaccinations moving quickly in much of Europe, the wealthy world's finally turning its attention to something that's been obvious for a year, which is the need to vaccinate the rest of the world. Less than one and a half percent of Africans have been vaccinated, less than 5% of people in Asia. But it isn't clear that attention is going to turn into action on the scale and at the speed that's necessary to avert disaster. The situation in India is catastrophic and it's really only the beginning of what could happen in other parts of the world. So the question at this G20 meeting was what to do about it. My point of view is that there are a lot of promises, there are a lot of plans, but it isn't clear that there's going to be action that's going to be anywhere commensurate with the scale of the potential disaster. Biden announced that, you know, America first is over. The United States is going to export vaccines, but he committed to export 80 million or to share 80 million vaccine doses over the next six weeks. That's more than any other country's committed, but it's really, it's nothing. Global health experts released a report, I wrote about it last week, saying that the U.S. and Europe will have a billion doses in surplus before the end of the year, and that they should start shipping them out right away. The U.S. has endorsed a call for an IP waiver for COVID vaccines. The Europeans made it clear at the G20 meeting that they're going to oppose this idea, which is effectively going to sink it. The question is whether there's some kind of a third way that can be found. COVAX, an international initiative that was set up to ensure equitable global access to COVID vaccines, so far has shipped a total of 70 million doses to 124 countries. 
that's less than half a percent of the population of these countries. And COVAX, even if they were to get fully funded and get access to all of the vaccines that they say that they need, their goal is only to vaccinate 20% of the population in developing countries and the poorest countries by the end of next year. To me, the, the whole thing is just disappointing. I guess that's my theme for the day. I'm disappointed. Um, and, it, and, and, it, and it seems like what's needed is for the United States and for the wealthy countries in Western Europe and elsewhere to get together and to do something that's of the same level of urgency, the same kind of scale, actually a bigger scale than Operation Warp Speed, than the Vaccines Task Force in the UK, and say, you know, we're going to devote all of our resources to getting the rest of the world access to the same level of vaccines as the wealthy countries are getting now. That's what's really needed, but I don't really see so Steve, I, I want to ask I want to ask you about that because there is the obvious moral and humanitarian approach to this, but there is also a scientific urgency that we all know the more hosts the virus has to replicate in, the more opportunity it has to create variants that could become escape variants to the vaccines. Is that if I know that, I'm going to assume that somebody has told those world leaders that. Is that not an argument that is resonating? I don't know. Do you really need to pile on more excuses for doing the right thing? You know, there isn't any question. There's nobody that would look at this and say, oh, yeah, I don't wonder. Is it really the right thing to, to save millions and millions of lives in developing countries? I have to have some kind of scientific justification that it's actually going to be good for the people in my country to do that. It's not that it's irrelevant, but I, I don't think it's necessary to, to force action, but it doesn't seem to be lighting the kind of fire under world leaders that is really needed. I think we've got to get Steve out of here. He has definitely <laughs> missed, missed it down this week. So, um, well, yeah, no, the whole, choppy, the whole choppy Lauren, who's going to figure <laughs> out the next checkpoint targets. And <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, you're right, Steve. And, yeah, you're and right. That, I, I'm not. I'm not dismissing that. Yeah. But I think we gave well, you all the all the dismal the, topics. Just don't let it leak into your copy this week, buddy. The, the the thing about it is that there are a lot of plans. There are a lot of ideas about how it could be done. It's not that it's an insoluble problem. The IMF surfaced a plan at the G20 meeting to spend fifty billion dollars, which, by the way, they don't have. They're offering to let other people spend the fifty billion dollars. I have children they, like that, by the way. And they say that they can end the pandemic this year if this money were to appear. I don't think that that's actually true. And people are wondering why the IMF is even getting into this, since it's really something that the World Bank usually addresses. It's not really the kind of thing that the IMF has got competence for. But anyway, it's an example. And, there, and, and I wrote in a story last week about some plans that uh, different global health institutes at Duke University have come up with. There are a lot of different plans for how to more equitably share the surplus vaccines in the Western world, how to help developing countries ramp up manufacturing, both in the short term and in the long term, things that would really turn around the COVID pandemic and would make the world much more resilient for future pandemics. The, the real question is if there's going to be the urgency to actually get these things done. Yeah. Here we are, what, 15 months, 16 months into this, you know, if they don't want to be do-gooders, they can be selfish. No one is safe until everyone is safe. No one is safe until everybody gets the vaccine. So hopefully people will start getting on board and working together. 
what more can be said, Steve? That, thanks for that update. And hopefully by next week, there'll be some huge announcement and, and you'll be able to be bubbly and like Lauren, like excited about lag three and how it's going to save the world. Maybe lag three can save, save all of us. Well, that's all we have time for. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Our friends in Cambridge, Kendall Square Orchestra, provide the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We'll catch you next week on Tuesday, though, because Monday is a holiday in the U.S., and we plan to take the day off. <laughs> <laughs>